0: Hope Church. Alright, good, good, good morning. Special uh, welcome to each and every one of you, especially those in visiting with us this morning. We're very glad you're here. Please make yourself at home and let us know if you need anything at all. Um, this morning we're continuing in our study of the book of 1 Samuel. Um, We're in 1 Samuel chapter 5 this morning, so just from the beginning of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 5, and I'll just give a little bit of the context, because really, um, you know, so much is dependent on context, as we study the scriptures, really a lot of, you know, life, you might not even think about it every day, but your life is, is in a context, right, I mean, you're in a, In 2019. You you know, if you live in Athens, Georgia, or around Athens, um, that creates a certain context for your life, and it influences how you see the world. Um, But you know, context is really important. Uh, Even in just like affectionate terminology of what we call each other, you know, context um, is important. You know, everything um, goes with that. You think about you know names that you, you or ways that you call to like really close friends. And that might be kind of odd if you use that same term with somebody the first time you met them, you know, on the street. They might look at you, like, hmm, that's interesting, you know. But so context matters. Context really, really does matter. Um, and so, just giving us the context of First Samuel, we have to go back to the end of Judges, where it, it ends with, um, and in those days, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You know, that's that's the context for the. For the book, and then um, at the beginning of First Samuel, we have a, a devout woman named Hannah who is childless, and she prays and she asks God for a son. Um, and God honors her um, request, and she gives her son Samuel into the Lord's service, that he would grow up um, in the tabernacle and that he would serve the Lord there. Um, Eli um, seems to be the the the. Um, the head of the priest at that time, and he had two sons, Hoph- Hophni and Phinehas, who were wicked and who did evil things. And because of their wickedness, it says that the people hated to go and, and make the sacrifices to the Lord. Um, and, you know, we see this whenever you have um, a false leader or a cult type thing, um, you always find abuse of power, greed and sexual immorality. And that's what you find with Hophni and, and Phineas. Um, those things are always always present when um, there, there are abuses at play. And which is a terrible and and awful awful thing. Um, and so we need to really be careful about that and to, to understand God's what God's expectations are especially God's expectations for those who are in positions of leadership over others, that God's, God deals with that and views that um, very firmly. And we'll see that um, even as we are in this chapter uh, today. So in God's judgment, the, the Philistines are, are neighbors with the Israelites. And, and throughout the book of, of Judges, harass them, take them into um, you know, slavery... Come and raid their crops or burn their crops, Um, and and God is going to use the Philistines in this case to judge um, the Israelites. Now, what does that mean? Really, what that means is God is removing His His hand of restraint and allowing the Philistines just to do what they want to do, because what the Philistines their their heart, what they want to do, the desires of their hearts, is to go and to attack the Philistines and to plunder them and to take their their land and their people and their stuff. That's what they desire to do. And so God, you know, allows them to, to do that. Um, the, so there's a first defeat in battle in the Israelites, without consulting God, say, so, you know, if we take the Ark of the Covenant with us, surely then God will have to give us victory. Um, you know, and they don't consult God about that. They don't repent of their sins. They just, you know, in their arrogance say well if we do this then God'll have to do that and un- unfortunately God is is still treated that way you know in a lot of a lot of cases we use um you know we, we have to be careful that we don't treat God or the things of God as some type of of good luck charm um, you know and just thinking about even you know the cross you know for us and you know you those of you who know, who know so we go to um, Mexico a, a pretty fair bit part of our mission work. there. whenever in a taxi and there's a, you know, there'll be a crucifix hanging from the, you know, from the, the rear view mirror and if you ask the taxi driver, why do you have that? The normal response is well, it's, it, it's for my protection. It's going to, you know, help me from being in an, an accident or, or something like that. Um, well, I guarantee you that, you know, there's accidents every day. <laughs> on those roads, and if you went to the taxis, you could say, "Well, there's the crucifix that apparently didn't work in that situation." It's you know, it's been taken, it's been used or, or misused um, as this good luck charm, and you know, the things of God are not that that way. We need to be careful that we don't treat God like that. Um, so let's pick up for the rest of our context. So the Philistines have won. They've taken the Ark of the Covenant as part of their, of a prize of a victorious, you know, battle. And so, um, let's read First um, Samuel chapter 5 verses 1 through 5. This is where we finished off last week. We'll pick up today. It says, The Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. When the Philistines took the Ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. That's their Philistine god. And when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set it in its place again. And when they arose early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. The head of Dagon and both of the palms of his hands were broken off on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso was left of it. Therefore neither the priest of Dagon nor any who come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to you this morning and we are thankful to be able to worship you and thankful to be able to uh, look into your word together and to learn from it. Um, we give you praise, God, that one day every false god of humanity, every false idol will be on its face before you, God, and that One day, as your scripture says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to your glory, Father. Thank you for that reality. Help us to live according to that reality. Help us not to live in our own superstitions or fantasy lands about who you are and what you're like and and what you require of us, but help us to know the truth, to know it clearly, uh, to see it clearly and to live our lives according to your way, oh God. We're thankful that ultimately your son Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We're thankful that all who enter in by him are accepted by you, and today we give you that praise. In your name, Jesus, we ask it. Amen. So, you know, this... This scene that we had in chapter 5, beginning of chapter 5, was this tremendous opportunity for the Philistines to recognize that the God of Israel, Yahweh, um, is a true and living God, and that their God, Dagon, was a man-made God, a false God, a, a God who could not keep himself upright, but had to fall before, who could not keep himself intact, but whose, whose you know, hands and, and head and everything fall, fell off that they served a God who had to be repaired by human hands. That they did not serve a God who was powerful enough to take care of himself. But they don't. They just treat the place where he fell as this holy place and step over not to desecrate it. But it had already been desecrated. God showed his power and ultimately, again, you know this has to be said because you know we we live um, just as the Israelites lived in this day, and the first followers of Jesus lived in the Roman Empire. You know we live in a pluralistic culture that just says you know make your own gods. You know you can in humanism, you can even be your own god, um, or there is no god. You know and and. You know anything is, is just as good as anything else, and the one thing you're not allowed to say is that you understand who God really is and the truth, and that you can say that definitively. That's the one thing you, you know, you can't do. The problem is if if we fear humans instead of fearing God, and we acquiesce, and we say, well, even if I believe it, I'll be quiet about it, and I'm not going to say anything, and I don't want to ruffle anybody's Feathers. I don't want to rock the boat at whatever you know little phrase you want to use. So I'm just gonna, even if I believe it, I'm not sure I'm supposed to believe it. Maybe I shouldn't believe it. Well, I'll, I'll, if I do, I'll just be quiet about that. Where is love? Because you're you're literally s- s- seeing the train headed toward the cliff and the the bridge is out. And your love is like, well, I don't want to disturb anybody on that train, so I'm just going to tuck my head down low and, and walk the other way, even though I know what's about to happen. But that's where we should be jumping and yelling, jump off, <laughs> get off that train, you know, doing anything that we can to get the attention of the people to, to leave that train of destruction. That, that, that train that is headed for judgment. And you can tell them, hey, there's, there's a different set of tracks you can get on. It's not a popular set of tracks. It's not a, uh, the most well-known set of tracks, but, but they're there. And it, it leads you to life and truth and joy and peace, forgiveness. We're not in a different situation than the followers of God have historically been in throughout history. But then we want to act, you know, like, like we're being asked to make some great sacrifice that it's like, well, other people have had to make sacrifices. And around the world to this day, you know, any sacrifice that, that we make in our context, because again, it's about context. And in our context, you may not get a promotion or you may get made fun of or you may be looked down upon. But in the current cultural atmosphere, that's about as bad as we get. Now, it could change. Cultures change. The consequences could be more severe. You know, By the time I'm, I'm looking toward the end of my life, consequences could be radically different. For, your, you know, for children that are, you know, today could look radically different as they grow up. For, the, for our grandchildren, it could look radically different. But when we consider the context of our world and what believers around the world go through, North Korea, Saudi Arabia, China, you know, the list goes on and the risks that they take, and the persecution that they face, and that many of our brothers and sisters actually have died in our day and time for the gospel that we preach. We should have a little bit more fortitude. We should have a little bit more of a backbone. Now that, of course, doesn't mean... That we have a license to be arrogant or to be rude or to be any of those things that sometimes people, you know, tend to go towards. No, we are to be meek, restrain strength, we are to be kind, we are to be loving, but we are not to be ashamed. We are not to be ashamed, we are not to be weak, we are not to be silent. Because God, as we see in this passage, he's going to make himself known. And it's far better for people to have at least opportunity to hear and believe the gospel and to turn and to suffer his judgment. In verse 6 of First Samuel chapter 5, it says, But the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod, and he ravaged them and struck them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how it was, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is harsh toward us and Dagon our God. Some acknowledgement there. But they still have Dagon as their God. Therefore they sat and gathered to themselves all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be carried away to Gath. So they carried away the, the ark of God of Israel away. And so it was, after it had carried away, that the hand of the Lord was against the city with a very great destruction. And he struck the men of the city, both small and great, and tumors broke out on them. So, I mean, we're starting to see a pattern here. So at Ashdod, they, they start to um, receive these tumors, and they're like, what do we do? And the men say, like, hey, let's send it in south, you know, back towards Israel, but not all the way there yet send it to gath let's see what happens there same thing happens to the people at gath now we don't I can't say definitively what these tumors are but um, apparently the hebrew you know lends itself to some type of hemorrhoid of a significant nature that's a that's 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 not a great situation just go throw that out there it's not a great situation and that it would be so bad that people are dying because of this, that's that's pretty, that's a pretty rough judgment as far as judgments go. Um, pretty rough way to go out. Um, and so then in verse ten it says they therefore they sent the ark of God to Ekron. So it was as a, as, a God of, as the ark of God came to Ekron that the Ekronites cried out saying they have brought the ark of God of Israel to to us to kill us and our people. So they sat and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel, let it go back to its own place, so that it does not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city, and the hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were stricken with the tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Now the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months, and the Philistines called for the priests and the diviner, saying, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it to its place. That's the beginning of chapter 6. So he said to them, sorry, they said, "If, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but all means return it to him with a trespass offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. And they said, what is the trespass offering we shall return to him? They answered, again, this is, you know, the, uh, the, the priest of Dagon, but um, those, um, the diviners or diviners who, you know, into the superstitious occult type things. So they said they answered five golden tumors and five golden rats, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. Therefore you shall make images of your tumors and images of your rats that ravish the land and you shall give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from you, from your gods and from your land. Why then do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts when he did mighty things among them? Did they not let the people go that they might depart? Now therefore make a new cart, take two milk cows which have never been yoked and hitch the cows to the cart and take their calves home away from them. Then take the ark of the Lord and set it on his cart on the cart, and put the articles of gold which you are returning to him as a trespass offering in a chest by its side. Then send it away and let it go. And watch, if it goes up on it or to its own territory to Beth Shemesh, then he has done us this great evil. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us, it happened to us by chance. So some interesting things that are there. You see the superstitions um, at play mixed with some things that are very true. You know so what's what's true in the passage? What do the Philistines understand that's that's true? Well, they understand that God had brought the Hebrew people out of Egypt, out of their slavery there. They understand that God had, you know plagued the Egyptians until the Egyptians let the Hebrews out of their slavery out of their bondage and let them go on their way. They they understood the h- historical context. Now, what's amazing is that for a very long period of time understanding those that historical context that the Philistines would have been picking a fight with Israel all those years and raiding them and taking people into slavery and doing all these terrible things to them. Because they, they understood what the God of the Hebrews was capable of so that's a, it's an interesting thing they like they know what's right they know what the truth is but they still live opposite of that in their dealings with Israel so they understand um, they understand this they understand that God has, you know, the God of, of Israel has been more powerful than Dagon, the God of the Philistines. Yet, they don't say, hey, why don't we just take on God of the God of the Hebrews. Well, I, I, I don't want to read too much into it, but, but here's the reality again of the situation. With Dagon being their God, they can live how they want to live. They can do what they want to do. They can commit any sexual immorality they want to commit. They can you know, make, the, they make their own rules of right and wrong. You can't just take the God of, of Israel. You can't just take Yahweh and then say, well, I'm still going to go and make my own rules. See, then the Ten Commandments come into play over them. That there's one God, He's holy. His name cannot be used in vain. You know, the, there's the, the things that He requires. There's there's laws about, you know, sexual morality and stealing and murder and covetousness. Well, they don't they don't want that. They don't want that. And and the reality I believe is the same today that there are many people who know somewhere deep inside of them that there is a a real God and one day they're going to have to stand before that very real God. But they don't want to submit to him here and now. Why? Well, they understand they have an understanding that God is going to to make a change in their life that he's going to require a different way of living. The historical record shows that when people are, are given the option between follow God and live according to his ways or don't follow God and potentially suffer catastrophic judgment in the end but you can do what you want. A lot of times they pick option B. And that's a sad and terrible thing because you know they believe this law that their life is going to be here and now is going to be Better if they live according to option B. But does option B actually bring fulfillment and joy and peace in life? No. The most that it can offer are moments of pleasure, moments of happiness. But it doesn't offer anything lasting and sustainable and satisfying. There always has to be the next. The next. You know, you've got somebody living for parties. They don't wake up one morning and go, you know what? Man, last night's party was so great. I am satisfied. I am satisfied of partying. I'm good. No, what, what um, sometimes happens, you know, people would just like, just keep on. Or they wake up and go, you know what? This isn't satisfying. And it's never going to satisfy me. And so now I'm going to try something different. That happens. Praise God. That happens. But you never have a person who's like, you know what, man, that was so good. That was so enjoyable. I never need another one. I'm just good as I am. That doesn't happen. Doesn't happen. But in their hardness of hearts, they just continue on Now, so they set up, and a, a lot of superstition, you know, sort of stuff works this way. It's kind of, you know, so they set up this like this test. So we're going to put the ark, um, you know, on this cart. We're going to have these oxen, you know, draw it, uh, or these, you know, these cows pull it along. And, and you know, if they go, um, you know, back towards home, basically we know it's from God, and if they kind of wander around aimlessly, then they know that this is just circumstance, this is just random chance that, that happened to us. That's how a lot of these you know things play out. It's like a 50-50. Okay? So even, you know, to a logical mind, there still have to be some question, you know, when you do a 50-50, it's like flip the coin, you know, sort of deal. But that's what they set out to do, and God, in his grace... Works, a court, works with them in their foolishness, you know, they should have, I mean, they should have just gone, hey, look, this is clearly, like, our God fell on his face and is, like, shattered. And we all have tumors. And, like, we, we're all struggling here. And a lot of us have died. Like, let's just do the simple math on that and and, and repent. We don't need to do, like, some sort of test thing. Let's just do this, what's most logical here. Boom. You know, but they do it this way. God works out, works with them, and this, which again is another opportunity for them to repent. It's like grace upon grace upon grace, and and it's not like um, that people have never responded to that grace. Remember, you know, Jonah with the Ninevites, and Jonah just walking through, like finally gets there and walks through the city, and he's like, judgment's coming, and the people aren't like. Well, maybe not. You know, No, they put on you know, sackcloth and ashes and bow themselves before God and declare a fast and like, beg for God's mercy, which they receive. So understand really clearly that the Philistines got on their faces before God and said, we repent of our false worship of Dagon, not a God. We want you, like, and we want to live according to your ways, they would have certainly been accepted by God. The Ninevites proved that. So one thing you can't do in the story is just make it like God just um, had no care for these people. There's a real opportunity for them. There's a real opportunity. So verse 10 says, The men did so. They took two milk cows, hitched them to the cart, shut up their calves at home, and they set the Ark of the Lord on the cart and the chest with the gold rats and the images of their tumors, which is kind of a silly thing. Now, the rats part, you know, the, the rats are probably, you know, rats historically carry, have carried diseases and plagues, um, you know, bubonic plague, you know, that sort of, um, sort of thing. Um, so that could be what's happened here, and they may recognize the connection um, between those things. Um, in any case, they do that. Then the cows headed straight to the road to Beth Shemesh, and went along the highway, lowing as they went, and did not turn aside to the right hand or the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them to the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and they lifted their eyes and saw the ark and rejoiced to see it. Then the cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh, and stood there, a large stone was there, so they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows as burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the chest that was with it, which were the articles of gold, and put them on the large stone. Then the men, then the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and make sacrifices the same day to the Lord. So when the five lords of the Philistines had seen it, they returned to Ekron the same day. These are the golden tumors which the Philistines returned as a trespass offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron, and the golden rats according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and country villages, even as far as the large stone of Abel on which they set the ark of the Lord, which stone remains to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemel. So, everything's good there. You know, the, the, the ark has left the Philistines. The Philistines recognize that. They leave. It seems like you know, their, their time of judgment has, has finished. And if we just stop the story right here, you could be like, alright, the ark's going to return to Israel. Things are good. And then we read this. In verse 19, Then he, that's the Lord, Yahweh, struck the men of Beth Shemesh, because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck 50, well, here's the, we're going to talk about this in a minute, manuscript thing. Either 50,070 men of the people, or 70 men of the people, and the people lamented because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. Um, so let's talk about a couple of things here. There, there is a manuscript deal about what number of people were slaughtered by God, um, but let's first talk about the why. Like, what, what has happened here? What have the people done, and, and who are these people that have done it? Um, both, again, context, context, context is really, really um, important. So, back in the, in the, the law, um, for example, in Numbers chapter 4, there are very clear instructions that the, the Ark of the Covenant is not to be touched by human hands, it's definitely not to be opened, um, that these are things that are, are not to be done, or that, you know, and it's clear that there would be judgment for that. The ark actually wasn't ever supposed to even ride on a cart. Now, the Philistines didn't know better, and God, in his grace towards them, like, doesn't punish them for putting the ark of the covenant on a cart. They didn't have the law and the instruction of don't do that. There were places for for poles to be, you know, put through rings on the ark of the covenant and it would be carried on men's shoulders and you would touch the pole but you would never touch the ark. It was to be carried by by the priests. Okay, that's how that was supposed to to go down. So again, you have God's clearly God's grace toward the Philistines that they didn't know better, and so they were treated according to what they knew about that time. They were judged according to the sins that they had committed um, as a people and uh, for their sins against Israel. Um, They were judged according to what they had actually done. They were were judged according to their false worship of Dagon and all that went with that. Okay, They're, They're not judged for something they didn't have understanding about. But these people of Bath Shemesh, in um, doing some, some homework on this, it seems likely that they are descendants of Aaron, the first high priest. Um, at minimal, at the very minimal, we can say that they are Hebrews who have, who have the law and have heard the law. You know, read, and who understood that they were not supposed to do what they did okay that's the very minimal, but it's even more likely that they were more it's more it's likely that they were even more responsible because of of the the lineage that they had, and that their knowledge and understanding of the situation would be expected to be even greater right and so that's why. The Lord struck them. Now, the numbers, um, some of the manuscripts, fewer of the manuscripts read the number 70. And apparently, in the Hebrew writing, there's not a very large variance between how you would write these things, between 70 and 50,000 and 70. Like to us, you know, writing in in English, if I write 50,000 and 70 on the board, and I write 70 on the board, there's not much like question of the, of the differences there, right? But in this, it, it may be a little bit um, easier to, to make a manuscript um, difference in, in it being copied. And generally, they were, being, they were very well, not generally, I mean, they were very careful about how they copied um, these things. So the, the manuscript side of it leans toward the larger number. Um, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation um, of the Hebrew that um, was you know, popular in the days of, of Jesus gives a larger number. So there are, some, but there are some manuscripts that have the smaller number. So you take that in consideration. Um, archaeology, understanding of the region and area, um, it, it's, it's very questionable of whether there would have been that large of a population of people there. That lends, lends weight to the smaller number. It also seems more likely that 70 men would have looked into the cart and been struck by that as opposed to God striking down 50,000 for what 50,000 people hadn't done. Does that make sense? But we do need to recognize sometimes one person sins and that has very negative consequences for other people, and we see that in the scripture. Sometimes you're like, "Wow, David sinned," and then there's this like slaughter of people. What? Whoa, you know. So, you know, I'm not, I, I don't want to completely write that off just by saying, "Well, it seems to us more fair." Okay, I can guarantee that whatever God did is just because God is just. Okay, so you do, and I, and I know that might sound like a uh, well, that's an easy way out of a problem or whatever. But if, if your perspective is that God isn't just, then whether it's 70 or 50,000 70, you're going to say, well, God wasn't just in what he did here. Perspective, it matters, right? If your perspective is that God is just, then your perspective is going to be that what God did here was just, whether it was 70 or 50,000 Okay, 70. That's kind of just how that is. Um, but what I want to what I want us to be very mindful though as we talk about application there's a couple things here that are really key, key here one remember again the, the, the Hebrews, Israelites are God's, God's chosen people he makes that very clear the, these men small number or large number disobeyed God and were destroyed they lost their lives. Okay. God didn't say, well, you know, Philistines who do things that are contrary to God, well, they get judgment. And these people who had, you know, the, my chosen people, the, the Hebrews here, they do things that are disobedient to God and they don't get judgment. No, God gives them judgment. In fact, God's judgment is more strict on them. You so see, again, the Philistines mishandled the Ark of the Covenant. They weren't punished for that. They were punished for other reasons. The Hebrews knew the, the law, or at least were expected, you know, the, you know, one of them said, well, I hadn't read that. Well, whose fault was it that they hadn't read that? <laughs> they had the law. You know, you couldn't say, well, I didn't know. Because sometimes, well, you should have known. You know. You, 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 willful ignorance is not an excuse. Willful ignorance is, it doesn't work. It just doesn't work that way. So they were judged by that. What, I, what we need to understand today is like we're thinking about, okay, well, how, well, how does this fit into today? What does this mean for today? Well, we need to understand. Well, what is well, on what basis does God judge people today? Well, there's different types of judgments. There, there are judgments that we would call, you know, like consequences. Like there, like when you, like we commit a particular sin, sometimes there's consequences for that particular sin, right? Sometimes you have those consequences where you get caught by. Others, if it's like if it's a sin that's also that our, our law system agrees is a sin, or agrees that it's wrong, they might not call it sin, but agrees that it's wrong. For example, stealing. Like a person steals something, well, God judges that one way or another. We'll talk about the one way or another in a minute. But he judges that one way or another. Our society also agrees that stealing is wrong. So therefore, if the person is caught by government, the person's gonna be punished by our government. So there can be a natural consequence there of that. Person gets away with it, the law doesn't figure it out, like the government doesn't figure it out. Well there's still God to deal with. Okay. So let's do this to begin with. The first the first main thing about God's judgment is that all people Deserve God's judgment. You see, now we just got personal because it's you know y'all can agree. Everybody's gonna agree if I if I go up and say, you know what, people who do bad things to children deserve deserve God's judgment. Most people are be like, yeah. I mean, there are people who be like, you know what? I don't believe there's a God, but if there's a God, He definitely needs to do something about that. Right, like, you definitely should judge those people. Right, like, very few are like, eh. I mean, you do have a couple of those, but those are very, very rare. All people deserve God's judgment. All people, the scripture says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Anybody in here want to say, I have not sinned. I'm going to raise my hand and go, "I have sinned. I acknowledge that. We all should acknowledge that. That's not hard to, to prove. We can just take we just take, like a little bit of the law and just say, "Hey, have you coveted? Have you wrongly desired something that belonged to someone else?" Most. Like, I mean, yeah. Well, okay, that's one law. Well, that's one. Have you ever said things, something that wasn't true to somebody? Well, that's a lie. So, okay, so you, you've, you're, you're a coveter and a liar. And we've only covered two commandments. Like, do we need, it's like, do we need to continue? And then you get into Jesus' you know, standard, where the intent of the heart makes you guilty, not just your physical actions or, or physical words, but the intent of your heart. Oh my goodness. Well, guilty, 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 guilty. And then the scripture says that that Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. What does that mean? Well, what is death? Well, death is separation. When a person physically dies, their their spirit is separated from their body. What is spiritual death? Spiritual death is, you know, first occurred in the garden. Remember, God told Adam and And Eve, you know, in the day you take of it, you will die. Hey, physically, they kept living on. They lived many more years. But it was a spiritual death. It was a separation from God. So the wages of sin, the, the, the just earning of sin, is eternal separation from God. Period. Full stop. I say that just to make the point that that's our deserve. Thankfully, even that verse for the wages of sin is death doesn't end in a full stop. Ends with a. It continues. Hmm. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. The gift of God. A gift is not something you can work for or something that you can earn. It is something that you either receive or that you reject. Consistently, salvation is is termed as a gift. Gifts cannot be earned. For those who are believers, the scripture says, for for grace you have been saved through faith and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works so that no one can brag. Can't earn it. In some religions, some systems, it's like you've got your good and your bad, and your scales get weighed. Well, according to the scripture, this is how it works. All your bad is there. Your good is your good, but it can't cancel out your bad. Debt, still there. Your debt is still there. Still sits on the scales, and no matter how hard you try, your good efforts can't tip the scales in your favor. Why? Because you've offended the Holy God. Sin can't be in His presence. God doesn't look at it like, well, you committed, you know, one thousand sins, and thankfully for you, committed one thousand and ten good things. And so therefore you get to enter on in. Like, no. Sin cannot be in his presence. He is a holy God. It's a gift to be received. God shows us how much he loves us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but has everlasting life. This is the gift of God to be received humbly. And it requires humility because whether the person just is a full-blown, like, I know I'm a wicked sinner, or they are religiously pious and says, I'm a pretty good person. The same response is required of both. (laughs) On the face before God saying, forgive me, I'm a sinner, Lord, please help me. I believe in your son, Jesus, who paid my debt at the cross. The same response. You see, here's the thing. The same response of the thief on the cross who knew he was sinful and said, Lord, remember me. is the same response of the Pharisee who thought he was holy and righteous. It It was the same response required of a Nicodemus. faith you know, to seek forgiveness it was the same response that was required and, and, and that throws off the religiously pious I think more than it does throw off those who just know and admit that they're sinful those who know and admit they're sin- sinful don't argue with the your good works can't save you because they haven't been trying to play that game they haven't been trying to earn it But for the religiously prized who've been trying to earn it through their lives, they're offended by that. But wait, you're saying that the person who's just been sinning and sinning and sinning and knows they're sinning, and and I are both viewed, you know, who've been trying to live right, are both viewed as as like just guilty before God? Yes, absolutely. That's what I'm saying. Not what I'm saying, it's what the scripture says. you're guilty at one point, you've, you've fallen short of the, of the law, period. And so it's a religious, in our, in our context, many times it's the religiously pious people who stumble at this point. And our, our churches, here in the South, especially, but all over the world, but especially here in the South, are full of people this morning who are religiously pious, Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of people this morning who view themselves as good people and quote-unquote you know, followers of God or Christians or whatever term they use who have never, ever humbled themselves before God and said, Lord, save me. I'm a sinner. I can't do this on my own. It's only you, Jesus. Only what you did at the cross was good enough for me. And just like these Israelites who opened up the Ark of the Covenant, they'll receive the judgment of God. Having been members of a church, Having been baptized, having gone through a confirmation, having gone through any number of ceremonial steps, will not have saved them. Will not have saved them. They will die lost in their sins. And the saddest part of that is unlike the person who just admits that they're wicked and admits that they're living in rebellion against anything good and holy, they will have believed a lie that they're okay. They will have believed a lie that they're okay because they were part of a a religious community, because they have gone through traditions and rituals, because they have generally tried to be a good person. Now, I'm not saying hell will be the same for both of those groups of people. Because it doesn't seem like that's what Jesus says. That's a whole other long conversation. but And, I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm certainly not telling you that there's a way out of that, either. Scripture doesn't say that either. Judgment is judgment. Final decisions are final decisions. But, what I'm saying is that first, we need to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to the religious. Not first. I, just, I mean, don't leave them out. Don't leave them out. You know, we do this all the time, you know, because we, we ask dumb questions. First question we often ask people when we're getting to know them, we're trying to figure out like, they're, like where they are before God. So, uh, where do you go to church? Well, they say where they go, you know, like, well, I'm part of this, you know, whatever. And, and you know, usually people, even if they only attend, like, on Easter, they're going to be like, well, I, you know, this church over here, you know, put a name on it. I mean, come on, that happens. I mean, <laughs> I could tell you some stories on that, but that's, that's fact. That's fact. People will do that. Um. But now you've got to go through the email. You know, if you have further conversation, you realize they're not. Now you've got to go through this uncomfortable thing. Like, you know how you said you were like a Christian and all that stuff? Well, I'm kind of wondering, maybe not really. Because <laughs> we ask bad questions. Ask bad questions, get you know answers that then you've got to unpack in a different sort of way. How, how about just saying, like, oh, so, you know, be, just be, be up front. So, so, you know, what do you think a person has to do? I love answer, asking the question that way. What does a person have to do to be accepted by God? Because a workspace person will always start with, well, you know you need to be good. Mm-hmm. Somebody who knows the truth is going to recognize, that's not even the right question you should be asking me. <laughs> person who knows the truth is going to be like, well, can't get in by being good. You only get in by Jesus. A person who's a true believer will recognize that off the bat and go immediately to Jesus. Listen, if it takes more, if it takes more than like 10 words to get to Jesus, I'm thinking there's one or two things. Normally it's like, you don't actually have Jesus. If it takes more than 10 words to get to Jesus, If it's like, be a good person, you know, help people. Oh, and you know, like, Jesus died on the cross for us, too. Mm-mm-mm. Mm-mm. mm Mm-mm. Mm-mm. No, Jesus died on the cross for you. And then he's helped change and make you a new creation. So then you want to live different. That's how it works. It doesn't work with, mm good person, then met Jesus. No. mm Mm-mm. Be highly suspicious of that. Not because you want to be highly suspicious. because you don't want a person to go to hell thinking they're going to heaven. I mean, come on. That, I mean, that's the saddest part. A person actually thinks they're right with God. We can't be right with God on our own terms. We have to be right with God on God's terms. That's the reality. That's the reality of it. Verse 20, the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Holy Lord God? And whom shall it go up from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kirath Jerem, saying, The Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up with you. Then the men of Kirath jerim came down and took the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Elisazar, Ele, Elez- his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. That's where we'll finish this morning in First Samuel. But man, that question the men of Beth Shemus ask in verse 20 who is able to stand before this Holy Lord God? And again, our context, we live post Jesus going to the cross. And our answer to that question is no one. No one. No one can stand before the Holy Lord God apart from Jesus. Like we're able to stand we're able to stand before God if you're able to stand before God it's because of Jesus. Full stop. See at the cross Jesus took my sin and gave me his righteousness. It's the most unfair lopsided Trade in all of history. Jesus took my sin and I took his righteousness. That's the exchange that happened because of what Jesus did at the cross. It's absolutely not fair. It's total grace and mercy towards me. And everybody who's entered into that transaction would agree. Nobody who's entered into that transaction goes, you know, I mean, Jesus got a pretty good end of the deal when we traded, like, my stuff and his stuff. Like, nobody who's actually met Jesus thinks that way. Everybody who's actually met Jesus goes, he got a rotten deal. He took it for me. And I just want to thank him. And I just want to live my life as a thank you for what he did for me. See, that's the change. But now, we have to actually understand there is a judgment for believers. It doesn't have to do with your salvation, but there's another judgment. And it's the the judgment seat of Christ. And it's about the reward or loss of reward for how we lived in this. But even in that loss of reward, understand that can result in the loss of your physical life. You don't have to read but 1 Corinthians 10 and 11 to get that. Because in 1 Corinthians 10 11, there's a talk about the Lord's table and how we take the Lord's table, the bread and the cup. And in the church at Corinth, there were people who were just, they weren't confessing their sins. They were believers, but they were just living in sin. And they were, then they were taking the bread and the cup like it was some trite thing. And the scripture says, for this reason, many of you are sick and some of you are dead. Some of you sleep, it's a kind way to say it, but what it Mm -hmm. means is some of you are dead. Well, we need to respect, we take the bread and the cup this morning, praise God, we need to respect that we take that bread and that cup that represents the body and blood of Jesus who died for us on the cross, we don't take it in a trivial manner. But we're instructed to take it. So you can't just be like, well, I'm going to get out of all that just by not taking it. Well, the scripture says, do this. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. So if you weren't, if you're just like avoiding it, well, that's, that's a sin too. You know, I mean, because why? Well, because Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. When he says to do something, what are we supposed to do? Do it. You know, I mean, like, it, it's pretty simple. So we don't get out of it by just being like, well, I don't want to be in danger of, of sinning, so I'm not going to take it. Well, th- that's problematic. Well, what it's supposed to do is, I, 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 need, I need to be obedient to take that, and I want to take that. I want to remember my Lord. Let me confess my sins before Him first, to be not washed in terms of salvation, but to the world's dirt, the dirt of my sinful flesh off of me, before I take that bread in that cup. We have that privilege to do that. This morning we'll have an open time. If you know the Lord as your Savior, you're encouraged to take it. If you don't know the Lord as your Savior yet, you're encouraged just to say, Lord, forgive me. I believe in you. What you did on the cross for me was enough. Thank you. Like, if that's sincere from the heart, like your heart before the Lord, I mean, it, it's an instant. There aren't all these steps to go through. Boom. Spirit of God, pow, into your life. You receive the Holy Spirit. You're sealed by Him. His promise. Boom. Done. Now you have a Savior to remember. Take that bread and cup. Awesome. It's Awesome. Our message, the world needs to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you again. We're thankful as the men of Beth Shemesh ask who could stand before you. We, thank, we are thankful that you made a way for us to stand before you and gave us your Son, the perfect one, the Messiah, who would die in our place, who would pay the debts we couldn't pay, that would present us to you as righteous. Lord, we're just beggars. But we're beggars who have found bread. The bread of life in your Son. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to show others where they can find life-giving bread. Help us, Lord Jesus, to be faithful to you and to your Gospel. So precious to us. As we take this bread and this cup, Jesus, that represents your body and blood, please help us to do so. Having your spirit examine our hearts before we take it. In your name, Jesus, we ask it. Amen.